Okay, friends, the story begins. We are on page 29. We are starting the prayer of the song of dedication. It's the prayer that comes right after Haudu, right before Baruch Sha'amar. And um, the, the history of this prayer. This is a direct cut and paste from Tehillim, from the book of Psalms, Psalm number 30. In fact, you could see that on the, the bottom there, the uh, the source notes, the bottom of your sitter. Psalm number 30, this is a direct excerpt from Psalm number 30, and we'll soon discuss why we're reciting it in prayers, but let's first understand the context of how this was authored. Psalms was authored by King David. King, it's The whole book of Psalms, or most of the book of Psalms, or at least a chunk of it, is King David's praises to God, much of it while he was on the run. And this is praising God for dedicating uh, the house, dedicating the Beit HaMikdash. Who built the Beit HaMikdash? Anybody know? I'll give you a hint. It wasn't King David. Solomon. <laughs> it was King Solomon, right? King David's son. So when King Solomon finally finished building the Beit HaMikdash and brought in the Ark of the Covenant, which was in, in the Holy of Holies. This was essentially the holiest spot in the world. King Solomon sang this prayer authored by King David about King David's dedication to God, and dedication to the house. Um, it's actually, it's not clear when. It, we know that this song was sang in the Beit HaMikdash. We don't know if it was sung at the inauguration of the first or the second, or perhaps the third. There's different opinions amongst the commentaries on Psalms. But many uh, believe and maintain that it was sung by King Solomon, honoring his father, King David. Um, let, let's take a look at the first line, the very first line. A psalm, a song of dedication of the house by David. Now, why is David so into this house? David didn't build it. David, uh, King Solomon built it. David wanted to build it. He wasn't able to build it. Anybody know why? Because he was involved in wars. He was involved in wars, right? And because the rule is, if you, if one were to be involved in killing, they're not allowed to build the house of God. Because God doesn't want to directly associate with killing. Even though he killed with permission, with God's permission, because there are times, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions is that the Bible says, thou shall not kill. And it doesn't say that. It says, thou shall not murder. King David didn't murder anybody. He killed. He had to. It was a necessity. It was protecting lives. Um, but he took one for the team. He wasn't able to directly take part in building the temple. He was able to conquer the land and get it ready. But uh, nevertheless, King Solomon honored King David, his father, in this ceremony. Let's quickly go through the prayer. Let's read it in English. It's actually very beautiful. It's very... If you're ever going through a hard time, you should read this because it's really powerful. Well, can, can I just ask one question? Um, yeah. So in in the wilderness, in the desert, the, the Mishka was kind of like the desert equivalent of the temple right correct it was like the temporary equivalent didn't moshe have it apart 
in building that, but he, he had killed, right? That, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Man, I've been stumped. I, he, I, my, my guess, I'm not, I'm not answering with a source, but I just tell you my speculation is that it wasn't permanent residence of God. Um, Seems the, reasonable. The, think about it this way. The actual soil where the Mishkan, the temporary dwelling, was located doesn't didn't retain any uh, Kedusha, didn't retain any holiness. You know, God, it was more like this is where God's being represented, but it wasn't a permanent uh, representation in the same way. I, I buy that. Okay, score. <laughs> okay, take a look on the first line, 29. A psalm, a song of dedication of the house, the house is in capital, right? Referring to the Beit HaMiklish by David. The Hebrew word for dedication, you can see it on the Hebrew side. What is the Hebrew word for dedication, by the way? Uh, Hanukkah. Hanukkah, right? Hanukkah means dedication. One of the reasons why the holiday of Hanukkah is called Hanukkah is because the altar was rededicated that day. Um, anybody else? Anybody know what else the word Hanukkah means? Hanukkah, Han. the Hebrew word chinuch, which means education. The Hebrew word for education and the Hebrew word for dedication, same word. That reveals so much insight into what education is. When we educate our children, we're educating them to be dedicated. So this is a song of dedication of the house by David. And here's what David says. I exalt you, Lord, for you have uplifted me and did not allow my enemies to rejoice over me. Bear in mind, as we're reading about King David's experiences, King David has gone through a lot. He's really had a, um, if you were to ask me, and there's a good reason why you shouldn't, if you were to ask me, he had a horrible life. <laughs> um, he, he had a lot of faith, though. He really had a lot of faith in God. Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol means, I don't know why they don't translate, but Sheol means the death. You have kept me alive that I should not descend into the pit. Sing to the Lord, you his pious ones, and praise his holy name. For his wrath endures but for a moment. When he is consolated, conciliated, sorry, there is long life. When one retires at night weeping, joy will come in the morning. You could see the faith that King David has. Yes, life is tough. Yes, life is tough. Yes, I've been through this, but God lifts you up. And yes, there's sad times, but there's going to be joyous times as well. In my security, I thought I shall never falter. And even though when life seems tough, we can allow ourselves to trust, to have faith, to feel secure. Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. When you concealed your countenance, I was alarmed. I called to you, O Lord, and I made supplica and I made supplication to the Lord. What profit is there in my death, in my going down to the grave? Can dust praise you? See, why does King David want to be alive? He could praise God. I have a purpose. I have a mission in life. And I can't fulfill that if I'm just, if I would just return to the dust where I came from. Can I proclaim your, tr your truth? 
Lord, hear and be gracious to me. Lord, be a help to me. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have loosened the cords of my sackcloth and girded me with joy. Therefore, my soul shall sing to you and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Okay. A lot of metaphor in there. This is, it's just, it's such a beautiful prayer. I, I like, we almost don't even have to discuss it. <laughs> it's it, it almost speaks for itself. But there really is a lot uh, to talk about here. King David is praising God for uplifting him. He's thanking God for uplifting him. And he knows that even in the darkest of times, there is going to be a brighter tomorrow. This is both. Now, the question that comes to mind is. What does this have to do with the Beit HaMikdash? This is a house, this is a song dedicating to, uh, dedicated to the Beit HaMikdash, and it talks about King David's rough times and how God has lifted him up and how he's praising God no matter what. What does that have to do with the Beit HaMikdash? It seems almost um, random. Almost off track. We're talking about the Beit HaMikdash. This is the song. This entire song has doesn't even mention it. So I'll share with you two answers that I read among commentaries. One from a more contemporary commentary, one from a more uh, classic, older commentary. First one we'll read, uh, we'll, I'll, I'll share with you the perspective of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Has anybody heard of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein? Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was, uh, passed away in the 1980s. So he lived relatively recent. Came from, I believe, Poland or somewhere in uh, escaped the war. And he ran a yeshiva in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And he was a famous go to rabbi all over the world. Fascinating uh, character, fascinating level of knowledge, because what was fascinating about him was not just his um, the quantity of knowledge that he had, but his ability to apply knowledge. Uh, to to halachic contemporary halachic issue, he was a go-to rabbi for rabbis. He was like the rabbi's rabbi. And when you had a question in um, medical ethics or all all sorts of like contemporary issues where you wouldn't be able to find the answer directly in the books in the ancient books. Because a lot of these, you know, things about life support, a lot of these different questions didn't exist in the same uh, way. He was the go-to rabbi, and he had the ability to abstract answers from ancient texts. And he didn't really need any book because it was all, it was all there, <laughs> it all in front of him. He really did. And there's volumes of, and volumes and volumes of, um, responsa on halachic issues. All um, on all varying topics that rabbis learn to this day. So he was known as Reb Moshe. He was known affectionately as Reb Moshe. He was Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. I'll tell you a quick story about him. By the way, I'm just getting distracted here, but I think I think this is important because you know the sign of a great person is they don't uh, 
you know, they can make time for everybody. This is a, he was a real great person. You can imagine how busy he was in his studies, phone ringing off the hook. Every Friday, this lady would call him, say, Rabbi, Rabbi, I have a question. What time is candlelighting? <laughs> if I was him, I'd be like, check the calendar, lady. <laughs> he would say, let me check the calendar. Let me get that answer for you. And he would make her feel good every single week because he realized what she needed was not an answer. She needed to feel good. And he was able to give that to her. Some people needed answers. Some people needed to feel good. But here's this perspective Rabbi Moshe Feinstein points out. What is the house of God? What is a true house of God? The true house of God is not a building. It's not just a building, although that is a part of it. But it's what's in the building. It's what the building represents. What does the house of God represent? What does the Beit HaMikdash represent? Well, let's read the text again. We'll just read the couple first couple of lines. Top of 29, a psalm, a song of dedication of the house by David. What is this house of David? I exalt you, Lord, for you have uplifted me. And did not allow my enemies to rejoice over me. When a Jew says, Lord, I exalt you, I realize how great you are. I realize how relevant you are. That's the house for God. That is God's house. When we rejoice over God, that is God's house. Because we're not focusing just on the physical structure. We're not focusing on the body. We're focusing on the soul. And that's what our, our second commentary, actually known as the Malbim, quoted in before, says the same thing. The house is the body that God saved. But our focus is on the soul, which the body is housing, which is praising God, which is singing to God. This is what our focus in life is. This is what it's all about. The structure of a house, that doesn't really matter. It's really the home that matters, not the house. What are we doing in that house? Do we have Jewish books in our house? Do we have mezuzahs in our house? Do we have Shabbat dinner in our house? Let's focus on the soul of the house, not just the physical structure of the body. And same thing with our own personal selves. We can easily indulge our bodies and focus on our bodies. But what about our souls? That is the true house of the Lord. That is the, that is the true house of God. Now, what does it take to, to, um, to feel that way? Now, these concepts, what we're saying right now, really overlaps with the Tanya studies that we've been having over the past several years, right? To experience what a true house of God is, to make ourselves a house for God, we need soul sensitivity. We already have a soul. That soul ain't going nowhere. <laughs> it's there, but we have to be sensitive to it. Our animal soul desensitizes. So I'll tell you a story. There was a rabbi, rabbi known as the Rebbe Maharash, Rabbi Shmuel of Lubavitch. He was the, uh, the fourth Rebbe in the Chabad movement. 
So this is going back probably a hundred and uh, let's say 170 years ago, give or take. And he was praying and Hasidim were listening to him pray. And he was reading this line over here. Third line on the English. Lord, my God, I cried out to you and you healed me. Let's see that in the Hebrew. It's the uh, second line in the middle. You see it? Hashem Elokai, Lord my God, Shivati Elecha, I cried out to you, Vatir Pa'eni, and you healed me. And they heard him praying, they heard him say that line, and he stops and he just goes into this trance, into this meditation. Of Hashem, I, I don't know what tune he used, but I could just imagine. Imagine some holy image, some holy rabbi, not just reading through this line by route, but Hashem, Elikai, Shivati, Elecha, I cried to you, Batir Pa'eni. And he was spending more time on that verse, saying it slowly. He was thinking about it. So they asked him, Rabbi, <laughs> what's the big deal? <laughs> we read this every day. What, what's, what's in your mind here? So he says the word Vatir Pa'eni, you healed me, has another meaning. It could also mean you've weakened me or you've loosened me up, referring to the animal soul. I cried out to you, God, and you've weakened my animal soul. You've loosened me up from that, from the balance, from the constriction of the animal soul. You've lifted me up. You're making me, you've made me more sensitive to my divine soul. Now my body no longer obstructs us um, from our relationship with God, but it actually facilitates or obstructs us from our sensitivity to the soul, but it actually facilitates our sensitivity to the soul. Who remembers chapter 29 of Tanya? Right in chapter twenty nine of Tanya, I actually love this analogy that we learned in the picture here, where we talk about soul sensitivity. And again, when when you learn the Tanya, the Tanya was originally advice given to people that were struggling, and then ultimately formulated into a book. So you can imagine somebody going to the altar Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. And him saying, I'm trying to dive into Hashem, trying to study Torah, I'm trying to do mitzvahs, I'm trying to do the right thing. And perhaps behaviorally, I'm doing the right thing. But emotionally, I'm not there. And I feel like I'm a fake, or I feel like I'm lying, I feel like I'm just not connecting to my soul. I'm doing what you want me to do, God. I don't feel like I really care. And that's not a good feeling. That's a big source of tension. Imagine somebody were to ask this to the Alter Rebbe, and he addresses this in chapter 29 of Tanya. He says, what's happening is your body is obstructing you from experiencing your soul rather than facilitating uh, your soul, housing your soul. 
And he gives the analogy of the, the um, he quotes the analogy in the Zohar, one of the earliest works in Kabbalah, where you have a log and you want to light that log on fire. You want to create a bonfire. But if the log is too thick, it's not going to catch on fire. On the contrary, it'll probably put the fire out. If the flame's too small, the log's too big, it's going to put the fire out. So what do you need to do? You got to splinter it up a little bit. You got to take a hatchet. You got to you got to make it more receptive to the flame, so you can get some twigs there. So it start off small. Be more receptive to that fire. We want our bodies to be more receptive to that fire. We want our animal soul to be more receptive to the inspiration of the divine soul. Not cynical. Okay, there are times when we're in shul or when it's Yom Kippur or when we're inspired and we're more receptive to the divine soul. But we want our animal soul to be receptive to the divine soul. Which means that drive that you have, that I have, whatever, <laughs> you know, <laughs> our drive for Diet Coke or our drive for wherever our animal soul pushes us, that can when that drives us to study more Torah, even if it's just a moment. So for that moment, my animal soul facilitated the divine soul, was sensitive to the divine soul, was inspired by the divine soul. When I don't feel like I'm fighting my animal, but I'm riding my animal, I'm in charge. So that's when we say Shivati. God, I cried out to you and you loosened me up. You healed me. You made me more sensitive to the divine soul. This is what a house of God is. That's a true house of God because a home for God applies not only in the physical sense in Jerusalem or even on a global sense in our own homes, but also in our own selves. We have to make ourselves a home for God. Now, why are we reciting this in the city? Again, the, the meat and potatoes of the Abani is the Shema and the Amida. But if you were to just get up and say the Shema and the Amida, okay, you, you fulfill the obligation. But ideally, you want to meditate your way to there. You want to work your way to there. In the words of the Zohar, the prayer service is a ladder, and we're transitioning through this ladder, we're growing. We're at this point in prayer where we really want to connect to the soul. We really want to connect to God at this point. And commentaries explain that, again, King David, the house of God, is in the name of King David, even though he didn't build it. But just because he wanted to build it, it's as if he built it. House is in his name. We didn't build the house. We don't yet have that house. But if we want it as badly as King David wanted it, if we're willing to fight for it and sacrifice for a home for God as King David did, we're going to have that house. And what we're supposed to envision, commentaries explain this, what we're supposed to envision but by the way, in general, if I say something that sounds really good, 
<laughs> you could assume one of the commentaries said it. Because <laughs> I'm not that. <laughs> have to give yourself more credit there, Josh. Because <laughs> I'm not always quoting the names, but you you could assume somebody else who was came before me said it. So when reciting this prayer, envision being in the temple. Envision being in the base of Mikdash. Envision what it would be like to feel inspired by the light of God. That's where we're aiming toward. That's the trajectory of prayer. And we're starting, and that's why we start off, or we, we continue the, the beginning of prayer with this prayer, so we can get into that mindset, into the mindset of making our own selves a home for God, making this world a home for God. Okay, that's it. That's all I got. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs>